0: Welcome to the Pursuit Table Talk Podcast with Pastor Russell Johnson and Dan Neary. Listen in as they talk through public theology, church growth, and revival in Seattle. Russ, one of the uh, one of the ideas that we've been throwing around lately, or at least terms that we've been throwing around, around lately, is this idea of public theology. And it's a it's a title that we put over the top of the things that you're like, like specifically thinking in the culture. Uh What's going through your mind these days as we're talking about speaking to culture theologically?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think especially pastors actually have a responsibility. They owe it to their congregations to not be scared to death of their own shadows And I think, unfortunately, what we've seen in the last 18 months is the biggest deficit of courage behind the pulpit that I've ever witnessed in my entire life. You know, Paul helps frame this in theologically to Timothy as Timothy pastors in the city of Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 3, he communicates to Timothy the role of the church, and he says, the church is the pillar of truth in society. And Timothy's pastoring at that time, you know, in the city of Ephesus, it's this major city, a center of culture and commerce and art and idol worship, and in fact, church history... Records that Timothy later gives his life for the gospel in that city for preaching the gospel and coming against idol worship. But Paul helps frame in our understanding of why the church exists. And one of the reasons why it exists is to be the pillar of truth in society. And what that means is that um, we don't have the option on whether or not to be a voice into the public sphere. Uh, the only question that we got to answer is, is our voice into the public square shaped by biblical orthodoxy or instead by our need for cultural approval? And I think going into some of the pandemic season uh, about a year and a year and a half ago, I really felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, unless you crucify your need to be liked, you're not going to survive what's coming next. <laughs> and so that has been a word that I've held on to because what it what what it has given me permission and freedom to do is to be a mouthpiece for what I believe to be orthodox values and how those impact our interaction in civil society. And believers belong in the public square of civic engagement. I mean, we belong there. And I think sometimes through bad teaching or um, bad apologetics or fractured epistemology, uh, or through sometimes a capitulation to you know political ideas like the separation of church and state, you have a lot of believers who have essentially abdicated their ability to speak into social issues, uh, lest they offend, lest they lose their influence, lest they lose you know a promotion or, or anything like that. And so, what we're trying to do is um, not be offensive for the sake of being offensive, but be honest for the sake of honesty. And what that requires, we don't have to be talking heads. you know. We don't have to um, give our opinion on absolutely every issue that comes across the 24-7 news cycle. That's not helpful either. But I think on some of these broader issues like religious freedom, I think some of these broader issues like sexual ethic, I think some of these broader issues like the nature of life and when life begins, when the church loses its voice, the world loses its mind. And so the church owes culture. It owes neighborhoods, it owes communities, it owes congregations to be a voice that helps frame in truth. And it, and Jesus says this um, in the book of John, he doesn't just say, I have truth. He says, I am truth, which for, for, for us means that Christ has become the filter by which we view our world through. He's not just kind of the sage on the stage who dispenses wise sayings every once in a while about loving your neighbor and treating others as you wish to be treated. No, he does say those things. But when Christ becomes our filter, what it means is that my worldview is rooted and anchored in its most deepest sense in a Christological fashion. So because Jesus doesn't just have truth, he is truth. It impacts everything I see. It impacts how I understand the world. It impacts how I understand my involvement in political spheres. It impacts how I speak to racial issues. It impacts how I understand the pandemic. It impacts why we kept the church open when we had a lot of pressure to close. It impacts those things because Jesus doesn't just dispense wise sayings. Like some sort of you know uh, uh, esoteric philosopher, you know, sitting in a sitting in a, a Greek temple, just you know, offering nice sayings every once in a while. No, Jesus, in fact, is truth. He is our epistemological framework, and everything that we see in the world around us must be shaded by first our relationship with Christ. I love the
0: way they, I mean, you, you've put a couple of interesting words together. One of the words that you put together was the sage on the stage, right? Because it seems like our culture is super happy with a sage on the stage sure. just another you know book of wisdom or ancient who dispenses wisdom from years uh, years and years and years ago but what you're saying is is when the church is being the church it's not just representing the stage the sage on the stage it is hard pressed In your face, this is the truth, deal with it.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, no historian uh, worth their weight would deny that Jesus was, in fact, a historical figure who lived and died in the first century. Sure. Where the debate comes is. Uh, comes from the claims that Christ makes of himself. The way, the truth, and the life. Right. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right. Uh, like Paul says, Christ is the express image of the Father. Uh, and so uh, where the debate comes is, is Jesus who he said he is? Because even in culture, there is, especially in the West, there is a level, I think, of cultural respect and cultural appreciation for historical Jesus. For a historical Jesus who lived and died in the first century and taught us about the nature of love and life and friendship and cohesive earthly relationships. Sure. Where the conflict comes is the truth claims that Jesus makes of himself and then the truth claims that the apostolic fathers make of who Jesus is. Right, And uh, that's where really the great conflict uh, 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 comes. Does, does Christ have permission to frame the way that I view my world? And I think that not only is that a conflict in culture, it's a conflict in church. Right. Because I think there are a lot of believers uh, who are born again in their hearts, but unrenewed in their minds. And so essentially they've got a pagan mind even though they've got a born-again spirit. Mm. If Christ were to return today or if they were to die, unfortunately, today, they would be in eternity with Christ. Right. But even Paul makes this designation when he talks to the church. He's talking to believers. He says, only the spiritual minded can understand spiritual things. And he says, some of you have a natural mind and you're trying to understand spiritual things. Right. And it doesn't work because there is a great conflict. And so until your mind is renewed to think like Jesus thinks about the world around you, you will always you know, develop a kind of odd, unfiltered, unanchored, uh non-orthodox opinions about the issues of life and then try to you know uh uh frame your Christ around your world instead of framing your world around the Christ revealed in scripture. Right. And so it's just my simple conviction that Jesus actually has an opinion on things and that scripture helps frame in You know, we utilize things like the Wesleyan quadrilateral and the evidence of Scripture and the apostolic fathers and the witness of church history. And we we have a hermeneutic that is well formed by our high view of Scripture. You know, Scripture is not suggestions. The the Bible is not good advice. It's good news. It is the proclamation of what is. So scripture is not arguing for a certain position. It is announcing that if you're born again and you're a part of the kingdom, that this is the way that your world has been framed. The kingdom is here. The king is here. And everything changes because of those two realities. And so really, it's my heart to pull people back into orthodox faith, and not just not just uh, orthodox in the sense of of, of right uh, uh, thinking, but orthopraxy, right right practice, sure. right thinking, right acting. And, and we've got to marry those two. It's not enough to have good theology because the, the, the truest theology that you have is not what you believe is what you what practice. What you do. That's right. And so I think sometimes people can attest to, hey, these are the fundamental truths that I believe. But does it ever translate off of paper into the way that you interact with civil society? Because um, society doesn't improve by itself. The church has a role in the redemption of the world. The church has a, a role. That's historically it, true. We right. I mean, lived through history. That it, is true. And <laughs> it's part of the Great Commission, teaching the nations right. to obey everything that I've commanded you. And, uh, you know, uh, we've got people who are afraid to even register to vote lest somebody find out they're participating in an election, which, God forbid, you know, they might have a different opinion than somebody else. We have so many people who have bowed at the altar of influence instead of bowing at the altar of righteousness. And here's the reality. When you have righteousness, God will give you the influence. Seek first his kingdom, watch, and his righteousness, sure. and all things will be added unto you. But I think the megachurch model has it backwards. Seek first influence, seek first platform, then be chained to those things and afraid of your own shadow, lest you say something that offends.
0: Right, drag all that around with you.
1: Yeah, You're right. And it just becomes dead weight. And Paul says, lay aside the sin and the weight. Yep. That's so easily ensnares. And so for me, I just go, we actually owe our communities better than we've given them. We owe them well thought out, well communicated, well nuanced when it needs to be nuanced communication about how the truth of Scripture should impact the way they interact with the world around them. It should impact the way you vote. It should impact the way that you frame public policy. It should impact the way that you understand sexual ethic. It should impact the way that you value family systems. It should impact the way that you interact with the world around you. It should because Paul says this, in him we live, move, and have our being, even as your poets say we are his offspring. And so what we have done is we have reduced the the total uh, uh, message of the gospel, which is give your entire life to this thing. In him, we live and move and have our being. Everything changes to now uh, Jesus is one of many nice philosophers who offers me advice like a fortune cookie every once in a while about how I should treat my neighbor. And I just go, "Uh, that is not a formula for success in the West.
0: I mean, was it Keller that uh, said that you either have to uh, take what Jesus said about himself and believe it or determine that he's a lunatic?
1: Right. <laughs> right. It's either one or the other. And, and even Peterson makes this observation uh, in, in some of his public talks that if the claims of Christ are true in Scripture, it is one of the most terrifying realities in all of history. Yeah. And because what it does is it calls people to account. Right. And it says, "No, we don't come to Christ on our on our terms. We've come to Christ on, on His terms. And Christ has replaced every other identity, every other idol, every other partisan position. It has been wholly, full scale, wholesale replaced by the reality of who Jesus is in our lives. And so, really, that's what we're encouraging people to do. And and uh, it, it's it's to it's it's to make a decision that I'm going to go all in on Jesus, and I'm going to allow this relationship to transform every part of who I am. And." Uh, In a lot of ways, COVID has functioned, uh, I think, as like a winnowing fan for the church. Mm. It has separated Mm. wheat and chaff. And what it does is is called people to account to say, hey, where do you stand on this stuff? And what do you think about the value of the church? What is your ecclesiology? Why do you think the church is important? Why do you think the church should be open? Why do you value the church's voice? Why does the church exist? It's forced us to wrestle with some of these questions that I think a lot of people haven't ever even considered. Sure. And so now we're wrestling with them, and our answer is the church exists to glorify Jesus. The church exists as a pillar of truth in society, and when the church loses its voice, it doesn't go well for the world around us.
0: Let me ask you about this. So I, I know that some, because you've had this new boldness just to speak with a public theology— um, and some have misinterpreted that as you are politicizing your pulpit. I think right. I saw Ed Stetzer, uh, I read it in the news, and by the news I mean Twitter. Uh,
1: sure. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think Ed Stetzer said, uh, when you mix religion and politics, you, you get, get politics. politics. Yeah. How do, I mean, how, how does that kind of a statement stand up against this boldness towards public theology?
1: Yeah, and, and I've seen that as well, and, and, that, and that I think should be a concern. You know, the reality is, especially as it comes to politics and religion, people are given to either ends of the spectrum, not to managing the tension of the middle. And what I mean by that is you either have folks who go love drunk on secularism and progressivism, and they feel like that's really the path forward. And, and really, that's just a that's just a, you know, a stopover, you know, uh, that that exists prior to really people rejecting the faith, or you have people who really try to marry you know, their particular conservative political beliefs to the gospel narrative as well. And There's that going around. If you're a believer, you must vote this way, <laughs> right. or you must attend these rallies, or you must confess these things. And I go, for me, here's two things that we need to be careful of. Trust the science has replaced Jesus is Lord for people who align on the progressive end of the spectrum. How do those things get on a spectrum? What is, what is, Additionally... <laughs> Make America Great Again Uh, has replaced Jesus as Lord for people on the right end of the spectrum. uh And so for me, I just go, I've got to manage the tension of the middle because every time that I allow Jesus as Lord to be replaced by a political slogan— then all I'm doing is really confessing that culture or politics is the true Lord and Savior of my life. And so I believe in being politically involved. You know, my background is is politics. I did about 10 years in lobbying and working for state government, working on campaigns, uh, U.S. Senate campaigns. You name it, I did it prior to the Lord calling me into full-time ministry. So I have an appreciation for the Daniels and the Josephs and the anointings that people have to be involved in political work. As it pertains to the church, I think we need to challenge people to vote in accordance with values that have been shaped by Scripture. And at the same time, caution people against. See, here's what I have to do as a pastor. I have to protect my prophetic witness by not giving my influence to either end of the spectrum. And it doesn't mean that things that I advocate for aren't going to align more conservative than they are progressive. Sure. That's certainly true. Right. But I think it's very easy to replace trust the Lord with political slogans and then end up worse off than you were before. And I believe that God works through governments. We're not anti-government. Paul is clear that government is a wineskin ordained by God for the ordering of nations. With that being said, what that doesn't mean is that God personally signs off of and approves of every single political position that people in a democratic society make You know, as a reflection of being being an elected official, and so, uh, you know, for me, what I'm trying to do is reframe the dialogue and go, yeah, there are things that we're going to stick to, uh, and and behold, and communicate and and advocate for that are more conservative than others. There are going to be some things that we advocate for that might seem more progressive than others, but at the end of the day, our allegiance belongs to the Lamb. Not to the donkey or to the elephant. And you know what's funny is um, when uh, President Biden was uh, elected uh, on the Sunday following the election, I stood up in front of the church and said, Scripture commands us to pray for our leaders, and so we're gonna do that. There you go. And we lost people at the church because I stood behind the pulpit and prayed for our elected leaders. I had people say, Pastor, you're giving up on the prophets, and I can't believe this. And I mean, we got people talking more about the second coming of Trump than they do the second coming of Christ. (laughs) We also have people who spend more time quoting from the CDC guidelines than they do from Scripture. And so we have these two warring political ideologies that I think are coming for the love and the affection of Christ followers. And so I want to be a person who keeps my eyes On the prize, and 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 really, here's my goal as a pastor: I want to equally offend both camps. What? I don't always do that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I always offend. I don't know if it's equally, but I want to retain a prophetic witness that calls people on either end of the spectrum to account. Right. And uh, you know, uh, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, and then allow Scripture to frame your values, then we don't have to tell people how to vote. We don't have to get up and do all these sorts of things and try to manipulate people. If, if people profess faith in Christ Jesus and allow Scripture to frame their values, we're just going to trust uh, and believe that with the gifts that God has given us, the ability to communicate and exe- exegete Scripture, if we win the war for worldview, the political spectrum takes care of itself.
0: Wow. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a personal question. This might not even make the podcast. So you had this political life. You've got this ministry life. You you make it seem like you're doing it right now. Have you always done it right? Have you made Have you made mistakes along the way? I'm I'm
1: sinless, actually. Is that right? Uh Excellent.
0: I had no idea. Yeah, I never made a mistake, actually. Yeah, so it's pretty. It's (laughs) pretty. You always had this political. uh, Have you always had the political thing in the right lane?
1: Yeah, you know, probably not. I think um, I think the way that people figure out tension is by probably um, reverberating off of both ends of the spectrum until finally they land somewhere in the middle and. Um, so no, I, you know, I don't think I've always managed it well or, or managed it perfectly, but I, I cut my teeth in political work enough to, to see, um, what I would call some of the abuses and idolatries on both ends of the spectrum. Right. And if politics could have saved us, we'd have been saved a long time ago. Oh, we're doing politics well. And there, there is a role for political influence and we've got elected leaders and mayors of cities who come to the church and we, you know, I, I am for that. We pray for those guys. We partner with those guys. As much as legally possible, but you know the reality is is that our hope is in Jesus. Um, but that statement isn't doesn't stop there. It's not in and of itself because I think oftentimes um, this sounds this sounds worse than I than I mean it to say. But I think pastors have capitulated to say things like, "Well, I'm just going to vote for Jesus," or "I'm just all in on Jesus." They don't have they're not ready to give an answer. It's not saying anything, and it's not saying anything, <laughs> and it hasn't served us well. Right. And so what we need people to say is, yes, Jesus is king, and I'm not looking for salvation through any political metric. With that being said, the reality that Jesus is king impacts the way that I interact in the public square of civic engagement. And part of that is how I frame in ideas related to public policy. You know what amazes me, even on my Instagram, when I talk about things related to public policy, the amount of Christians who uh, DM me to say things like, um, well, I just can't believe you would say this, and, you know, uh, this sounds rude, or, you know, uh, we're not supposed to say this because of the way Paul talks about government in Romans Romans 12. We've raised an entire generation of politically illiterate believers because we've been afraid to talk about this in an intellectual way from the pulpit. Right. And so I'm going to change the narrative. We're going to talk about it in a way that doesn't just champion the GOP. It certainly is not going to capitulate to the progressive end of the spectrum. However, we're going to talk about this in a way that our allegiance to Christ frames in our epistemological values. What do we believe to be true? You know, we live in a world where you got people saying trust the science, but the same people saying trust the science tell us men can be women, women can be men, babies aren't babies until they're born, they can be aborted in the ninth month, and yet these are the folks who want to champion that science is their god. Right? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it, it, it's laughable on its face. But we've got we've got people who aren't aren't able, I think, to um, engage in this type of dialogue. Uh, with with the necessary uh, communicative tools to be able to help people see truth for what it is
0: let me ask you this I mean uh, we we're in a context we're on the west coast we're in the state of Washington yes sir we're on this side of the mountains uh, we are in a Seattle suburb uh, it's uh, it has a political flavor yeah. it has it's highly intellectual it's uh, highly uh, technical you think that there's uh, What's unique about doing public theology in our context?
1: Yeah, I think you know one one of my theological heroes is G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, and the way that he managed um, the conversation in in regards to public theology. And you're right, we're we're in the, the West Coast, or as they call it, the Left Coast, in one of the most uh, liberal areas uh, in the entire nation. And so uh, it appears to me that if if God can do it here, God can do it anywhere. But I think what God responds to most, and we don't always get it right. This certainly isn't like a um, follow uh, everything that we've done. We've never made mistakes. We figured it out. Here's the formula. Right. No, we made a lot of mistakes mm. along the way. But I think, what God, I think what God has honored most in my life and the life of our team is the courage to try. Okay. You know, the courage to try to engage in these topics. Yeah. yeah and there's been Sundays where I've got off the stage and said, you know what? I wish I didn't say that. Or I need to go and rethink that thought because it didn't come out the way that I wanted it to come out. But I think what God has honored is our attempt to try to engage in dialogue that matters. You know, um, we're in the midst of uh, a worldwide pandemic that has ushered in a new biological age. It will forever change the way that we live and the way that our kids and our grandkids live. Uh, We are in the midst of political dialogue we're in the midst of dialogue regarding race socioeconomic values who we want to be as a country we're coming out of uh times of political turmoil and um and it's like sometimes you got pastors standing behind pulpits who are not scratching where people itch they're not they're 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 acting as if the world is functioning as an independent organism not attached to what their role is in a church or as a believer. And I just go, yo, th- these things are connected. Right. <laughs> we are here until God calls us home. We are ambassadors of heaven in the yes. earth. Uh, if Christ didn't want us here, then on your confession of faith, when you got saved, you would immediately died and gone to heaven. There's a reason you're still here. Right, that's good. And so, you know, it's like over the last year and a half, uh if 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 pastors haven't learned how to find their voice now there is very little hope for them in the days ahead because we are not getting into a more understanding society we are we are not we are not coming into a shared communal values our, our society is fracturing into tribalism faster than at any other time in our country's history right. the conversations are getting more difficult The topics are getting more reactive. The politics are getting, you know, uh, uh, more anxious. Um, The the people that we got to interact with are getting more difficult. Neighborhoods are getting more separated. And so uh, I think there have been some folks who have like um, tried to pull the covers over their head, hoping that normal will come back soon. But normal is never coming back. And in fact, that is the great invitation of the hour, is we have the opportunity to course correct and to now steer in a way that at least is aware of the things that are happening in the world. And so, uh, you know, to me, we got folks coming to the church and, and uh, we're, what we're trying to do is to give them biblical framework. To help them understand the 24-7 news cycle. To help them understand engagement in public school. To help them understand the value of raising kids with a mom and a dad. To impact how they understand sexual ethic. To impact how they understand things like gender. These are the questions our communities are asking. And so if all we give our people is seven tips on how to smile better and, you know, those types of things, it's like we are actually doing a disservice to our folks by not allowing the gospel to impact these areas of society.
0: See, that goes right into a question I wanted to ask you, because someone listening uh, might think that you're being mean to pastors no. Well, you love pastors, right? You are mm-hmm. one. I, 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 you you're are one pastor. too, I think. I, I am one too. Yeah. yeah. Not as good as you, but I'm... Well, a, I, oh, come on. Yeah, come on. on. Uh, so let's, let's just imagine there's a pastor listening. Yes. And uh, that pastor's challenged by what you're saying, and they're thinking, you know what? I need to wake up. You got any tips for him?
1: Yeah, don't give up. You can do it. The world needs more pastors, not less. The world needs more churches, not less. We are pro-pastor, but this is a time of choosing. Yeah. This is a time of choosing. What will you be? What type of impact will your church have in the neighborhood that God has you planted? What type of leader are you going to be? What type of voice are you going to have? This is a time of choosing. Normal is not coming back. And I know that's scary. And I know that feels like it is rattling us to the very core. But it's actually some of the best news that there's ever been. God has hit reset on the church. And we have the ability to replant. Yeah. And, you know, we planted this church about eight years ago. And planting a church was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, but we have replanted this church over the last 18 months. (laughs) I have lost more people over the last 18 months than in the last eight years combined. Sure. I have also gained more people in the last 18 months than I have in the first eight years combined. And so we've been in the midst of a reset and a reshuffle as Mm -hmm. well, but it's actually given us the opportunity to reframe what we believe to be true about church and what we believe is our responsibility as communicators of the gospel. And that's been great. And it's been exhilarating and it's been freeing. And um, my challenge to pastors who might be listening to this podcast is this 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 is an this is an opportunity for you to come out of the the uh, the subtle lie that the influence from Babylon is going to pave the road for your future. Sure. And instead, you know, uh, uh, commit yourself to a fresh understanding of, of, uh, scripture the witness of church history the orthodox values uh, of the bible and go all in on that stuff i mean that that's the the future belongs to the orthodox the future belongs to people who uh, can read church history.
0: I love that, because when you we, we use the word like Orthodox, that seems like an old, ancient thing, right. and you're saying, that's the future.
1: No, I think it, yeah, and I think it is, and you know, when Christians hear the word Orthodox, they think of uh, a church, and everybody's in black robes, and chanting, and you've got incense back and forth, you know, they think of a church tradition. and some chanting. And some chanting, sure. yeah, some some monks, and things of that <laughs> nature. But when I'm using the word uh, orthodox, I'm talking about the values, the theology, the principles, and the ways of the apostolic fathers, of the New Testament, of what Scripture communicates, uh, and going back to the basics. You know, when we think about the things, when we think about topics like revival and reformation, it is not the start of something new. It is the uncovering of something old. What we're doing is we want to shine new light on old topics. We want to shine new light on old faith. We want to shine new light on these values that have always been there. We're not trying to create a new way. <clears throat> We're trying to be new people, right. redeemed people yep. who are walking in the old way. Yeah. You know, scripture says the road that leads to destruction is broad. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. There's a sociological construct that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. There is a political method that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. There is a theological formula that seems right, but in the end it leads to destruction. But the road to eternal life is narrow. And so what we're challenging people to do is let's walk a narrow road, let's go back to the basics— Let's go back to the book of Acts. Let's go back to the historical faith. Let's go back to the witness of church history, and let's be unafraid. There, Literally, in the West, the cult of influence uh, is, is maybe the fastest growing religion within the church. Mm. It's just this need to be liked and affirmed by people who don't share our values, It is placing the wrong value statement on things that don't matter. Being popular on social media is like being rich in monopoly. Nobody cares. (laughs) It doesn't count for anything long term. I'm not talking about not stewarding your influence well. Influence is a gift that God gives us. I believe, as a result of righteous and faithful Christ followership. Yeah. And we've got it the other way around. Right. We've got guys with big stages yeah. and, and, and very limited theology. Yeah, and sometimes it feels like it's getting worse. And it, and it feels like it's getting worse. And so, you know, for me, I look at this and I go, man, what the enemy meant for evil, which was COVID, God, in fact, is going to use for good. This is the great reset for the church, and we've never needed it like we need it now. I think we're coming into a third great awakening. I think it is another age of reformation for the church. I think the future belongs to the Orthodox. The future belongs to presence-driven communities. The future belongs to churches and pastors who aren't afraid of their own shadows. The future belongs to people who are just willing um, to submit themselves to the one who doesn't just have truth but is truth. And so, you know— the days ahead are going to be hard. They are. There's, there's some hard choices that, that folks are going to have to make, and you will lose people. Sure. And you will feel like I am dying and I'm killing this thing. But unless the seed goes into the ground and first dies, it produces no good thing. And so, like, th- this is our time yeah. to allow seed to go into the ground and die, that God could produce something good. Yeah, amen.
0: Pastor Russell, uh, people are uh, hearing about the pursuit. Sort of become famous. People are talking about what's going on because. Oh no. Well, no, it's it's a good thing because we've had this extraordinary growth, uh, especially over these last eighteen months, and people are wondering uh, how did you do it? What is going on? What's the secret sauce? What have you? (laughs) You must have cooked up some sort of special formula. Give us a secret. Don't give us all the secrets. It's it's because
1: we started snake handling. Ever since, yeah, yeah, it's been super helpful. So. Yeah, we're steak handling now, and um, we require women to wear head coverings. Excellent. And uh, yeah, so I feel like it's just really communicated something well to the neighborhood. Okay, and, so
0: that's probably not going to help anybody. <laughs> okay, what's, no. What's going on here?
1: Here's the reality. Yeah, no, the church has experienced a phenomenal growth uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, really 12 months. And I always tell people, man, I think we're growing, probably not because of us, but in spite of us. Uh, I I really sense that we're in a moment where um, the favor of God and the calling and the election of God is making all the difference. You know, we're free will people, but the more I'm in this journey, the more I feel like sometimes God, by His Spirit, just begins to sovereignly do things. And so there's certainly a role for us to play, and I think God responds to obedience. Simple obedience changes history. But I, I am just as surprised as anybody else. You know, uh, it'd be easy to sit here and go, yeah, this was the master plan all along. And we knew that we'd be running twenty five hundred uh, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and twenty five percent of the city shown up to the church. And it would be easy to sit here and say that. But all, all of that stuff is, is untrue. You know, I was just as nervous, you know, 18 months ago when when our world entered into kind of this dark age, really, for the first time, uh, just as much as anybody else. What What is going to happen? Is the church going to survive? Are people going to show up? Uh, what is the future of the gospel? What is the future of local gatherings? Uh, what are we doing here? Are we doing it right? Are we managing it right? And we've made a lot of mistakes along the way, and, and we have a great team that that's kind of helping us out. But, um, you know, I think for us, uh, 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 I think the decision that we made early on um, has become super important in the trajectory of this church, which is, uh, we were going to go uh, all in on the message of revival and reformation, okay. and uh, we weren't going to be cowards in the public square. And so, you know, my message to our folks is revival or we die. That's it. Like revival is not a good idea if we get around to it. If we don't have it, we're dead. And so we're going all in on a move of God's presence. It, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to combine the excellence of uh, process with the pursuit of the presence of God. I think sometimes in charismatic churches, what you have is you have some charismatic churches that are very Pentecostal and really go for it. You just don't want to invite any of your friends because it's not excellent. It's not done well. It's weird. Or you have churches that are really done well, excellent processes, all of the tracks for the worship team sound and look great. You know, the pastor looks exactly as he should. The pastor's wife operates exactly as you think she, she should. All of these things, but they have no oil. And so what we're trying to combine is the oil of presence-driven with the excellence of process and systems. And so that's been kind of an organizational shift that that we've really leaned into uh, over these last number of months. But uh, what I found is that when people visit visit the church, um, they show up and they say things like this, man, I feel like I'm home. I didn't know a place like this existed. You're speaking a language uh, in my heart. uh, I don't even know how to explain it. But people are feeling and sensing that this is their home. This is what they want to be a part of. And I think people appreciate and notice that I I put a lot of time and energy into being a voice of courage, being a voice of boldness, but without capitulating one way or another to either end of the spectrum. And so I think people appreciate, you know, some of the communication style and, um, yeah, I mean, we're hanging out for dear life. It's like a freaking roller coaster, you know, it's just...
0: You, I mean, so the question I'm going to ask you is, wh- why now? And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you stepped out and planted Pursuit just about eight years ago, and I'm your numbers nerd around here. So I look at the graphs.
1: I would never call you a nerd, Dan.
0: I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm, I am such a nerd. I look at the graph, and it's like, hey, the church had, like, really impressive growth but over these last 18 months even over the last year it's a yes, game changer it's yeah. it's been crazy right. right i mean we've quadrupled from the average attendance from a year ago right uh, it, 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 why now i mean it's it's not like revival and reformation are a new idea and it's not a new idea for the pursuit i, I right. know that but why right. now do you think
1: yeah i mean um i think that there uh there are seasons of sowing and there, there are seasons of, of reaping. And the, the church is in its eighth year of, of being around. And, um, you know, I think between year one and year two, the church grew by four people, you know. And there were some years we grew in the wrong direction. <laughs> and there were some, uh, uh, some months where um, we didn't know how we were going to pay the bills and who was going to come through and how we were going to pull this thing off. But I think we were faithful to keep our hand to the plow. And um, there is something about persistence. There is something about contending. There is something about knocking on on doors until they open. There's a value for that that Jesus speaks about in his parables or analogies related to the kingdom of God. He talks about like the widow going before the judge or uh, a neighbor who goes to his friend's house at midnight to ask for bread. There is something about the consistency of contending and sticking with it. And And I feel like the greatest spiritual gift that I've developed In the last year, has been stubbornness. And it's a stubbornness to say, hey, we're gonna keep going when others don't. We're gonna take the criticism in stride. We're gonna take the threats of lawsuits in stride. We're gonna take the threats of government interference to shut down the church in stride. Uh, We're not gonna be rattled by this stuff. We're gonna respond when we feel like it's appropriate. But at the end of the day, I'm gonna be in church Sunday morning and I'm gonna be knocking on a door. And uh, you're invited to come uh, and, and participate in that activity with me. And I think, you know, this moment in history uh, uh, is going to reflect uh, well on, on people who have the courage and, and the tenacity to keep showing up. And so uh, I think that has been contagious. You know, fear and faith are both the two most contagious elements in any organization. Oh, wow. And so, you know, for <laughs> it's me, good. it's like what you model, what you—fear and faith are both leavens. You know, and and what you and what you give yourself to, what you communicate to, what you take a stand for, it grows. And uh, we've tried our best to be people of faith. And I mean, God is just sending. I mean, you see it. I mean, on any given Sunday, we got folks driving from hour, two hours, three hours away just to be a part of the church. And
0: that's just for a, a one-off visit. Like no, they're members. Yeah, weekend. they're a part. Yeah, they're they a make part. Make a weekend out of it, and they drive four hours one way.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, this, the the population of the city is growing every Sunday that, that the pursuit uh, holds services, and so
0: literally by about twenty five
1: percent. Yeah, yeah, and we're just, we're just, man, we're just. Uh, listen, I feel lucky to have a seat at the table. I feel really blessed um, to be in the position that I am. I certainly am aware most of the things that I don't deserve. But uh, I think one of the things that has helped me is that we've really surrounded ourselves um, here. I, I really feel like we have built a team of people, and I've surrounded myself with folks who honor me, but they're not impressed with me. And I think that's important in the sustainability of where this thing is going. People who are willing to go, hey, look, we honor the God-given calling and anointing that's on your life. We honor the fact that the elders have laid hands on you and commissioned you in this role. Uh, at the same time, you're just Russ. You rust us. And and that actually has become part of the formula for self-preservation going forward. Because when people begin to believe their own press,
0: yeah,
1: or begin to operate as if they are God's gift to the church, right. you know, the church is God's gift to us. Right. We're not a gift to it. It's a gift to us. Right. And we have a responsibility how we steward it and how we manage it. And so we've really tried to build a team of people who they are aware of how to honor and they do a good job at that. But they don't treat me or act like we're floating on air. Yeah. You know, it's just hey, we're all in this thing together. We're all plowing in the same field. We've got our hands on the plow. We're not looking back. We're all contributing in different ways, uh, and it doesn't mean we don't have hierarchy. It doesn't mean we don't have organizational structure. You know, you help us with designing just about all of that here in this organization. It's not that we don't have processes that we sure. follow and people who ultimately can make calls and things of that nature. But uh, I think it. What I want to be is I want to be the anti mega church mega church. It's what I want to be. Let's talk about that. I, uh, I, I think that there is an opportunity um, for leaders in this era to model both radical boldness and radical humility at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. And so what I mean is uh, humility in the sense that you are uh, staying sensitive and soft in the presence of God. Genuine humility. G- genuine, yeah. Like the presence of God still moves us. Yeah. It's still, you know, I still gather on Sunday morning and I look around and I go, how and why and who and, I, you know. So I want to stay impressed with what God is doing because it's not a reflection of my greatness. It's a reflection of His. And so um, I think we, we retain this... this um, this uh, ability to still be moved by the things that we see because for you and I especially because we work in this environment this becomes rather normal to us mm-hmm. every sunday it's like well who's going to show up and what's god going to do and right. what cool thing is next yeah. and miracle testimony and 40 people get born again it, and the reality is and we do it 4 times every and sunday and we do it 4 times every sunday
0: around it's like it seems pretty routine yeah and
1: we're you know we're about to start a fifth service in a different location where you know where it's become routine to us but for the grandma who's been praying for the grandson who's been far from God for 30 years, it's, it's not routine to them. It's a matter of life and death. And we are stewards of eternity. We are stewards of eternal moments for people's lives. And it still moves me every Sunday. It still moves me to see that, um, that God in his infinite wisdom and grace would choose to do something in this moment. And so like, for me, I go, um, that's what makes me qualified to lead this thing is that it still moves me.
0: Yeah. You talked about faith and fear, and I love that. You called them both, you know, like these extreme contagions. You called faith and fear 11. Um, we can listen to you. It's pretty easy to hear what, you're, what you have faith about. You got fear about anything?
1: <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. <No>, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, I'm reminded of what Paul tells Timothy. You know, he says, For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. The reason why I love that verse so much is because Paul is telling Timothy, it's like, for every one thing the enemy tries to do to you, God's given you three tools. The enemy's trying to give fear, but it's not just that instead of fear, God's given you faith. Right. The enemy's trying to give you fear, Timothy, but watch what God's given you, power, love, and a sound mind. And so, uh, and you know, that word sound mind in the Greek means the ability to think safe thoughts because all of us struggle with unsafe thoughts. All of us, it's part of the human condition. It's anthropological in nature. It's not even spiritual warfare. It can be at times, but all of us struggle with unsafe thoughts. All of us struggle with an errant mindset or, or thought pattern that will fly our way every once in a while. You'll just be sitting there and all of a sudden it will hit you out of nowhere. And it's what you decide to do. With those birds that fly over your head, that makes all the difference for you going forward. And so I like to tell people this, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. And so I don't beat myself up or other people up when they got a bird flying over their head. That's normal, that happens, but it's what you do. That's why scripture says, take captive every thought, take captive every vain imagination. Everything that tries to set itself up over God, take captive of those things, because if you don't, pretty soon they'll take captive of you. And so I think some of the natural and normal fears... Uh, related to church leadership in this uh, era. I think some of the anxiety produced by the conflict with local government we have in relation to the church being open, you know, you're fearful of, um, of uh, what people could do and what people could say. And I, I don't want to operate as if, you know, somehow I've graduated out of insecurity. <laughs> I don't think I have, right. I think I've done a better job at crucifying it, but that's why Paul says I die daily. Cause there are things that you got to bring to the cross every day or else you won't survive. And for each of us, we have a different cross to bear there. Every season requires new sacrifice. And over the last 18 months, every day that I wake up in the morning, I've had to bring my insecurity to Christ as I'm going to lose my mind because it wages war against the confidence, the love, the power, the sound mind that God wants to give me. Right. And Paul, Paul tells the believers, he said, let this mind be in you, the mind of Christ. So I know I have the ability to think like God thinks about my circumstances, but I struggle to stay there. And so, you know, for me, what I find is what motivates a lot of my fears are insecurities. What I tell people is anxiety is a conspiracy theory. You believe about yourself <laughs> and most of the things, even in the sociological studies that they've done, most of the things that people worry about never come to pass. Ever, but anxiety is like a rocking chair. It's a lot of movement, but no forward motion. Right? You know, it's a lot of back and forth, but no forward motion. And so, there's been things that are. Ang- I mean, you should see. I mean, we've gotten 24 pages letter from the government, sure. from the county, the health department. We're gonna shut you down. We're gonna fine you. You can be held liable. You could uh, be ten thousand dollar fine. You could be ninety days in the county jail. I mean, yeah, those things cause a little anxiety in your life. You don't want to go to jail. I mean, you know. Hey, listen just send me a care package. I'll be okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, so those things can be anxiety producing. And so what I have to do is I got to bring that to the cross because if I operate out of anxiety, here's the problem is that uh, what, what leaders develop in their own life is exponentially manifested in their followers. Mm-hmm. And so if I operate in anxiety, mm-hmm. then it's going to produce chronic anxiety amongst the people I lead.
0: Fear is contagious.
1: And fear is contagious. And so, you know, and sometimes you got to talk yourself into faith. You know, and I think sometimes people think on Sunday morning, I'm just gathering there and it's like, this is my favorite thing to do ever. And I never wake up on Sundays and don't want to be there. And I never, no, I I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I got faith, Lord, help my fears. I've got security, help my insecurity. I've got safe thoughts, help my unsafe thoughts. Hey, I'm going to be honest and transparent about where I'm at. But see, honesty and transparency is never an excuse to not be transformed. And so we live in a culture that's really created a value out of being real. I'm just being real. I'm just being open. I'm just being honest. Okay. Well, Scripture says be mature. Scripture says, be ye transformed. Scripture says, be born again, be made new. Scripture doesn't say I was born this way. Scripture says you must be born again. And so for me, I look at that as an invitation into development. You know, and for us, like when we get born again, that's not where the journey stops. It's where it starts. I'm invited into transformation. God's not going to force me to grow. And by the way, trees don't grow in moments of passion. They grow as a result of rootedness and connection. And so some of what we have in our world today is what I would call Homeless believers. What do you mean? Who are in different church homeless camps every season. You know, and, and sometimes I call it the Highway 9 tour. I'm going to be in pursuit for a season, up the road uh, in a different season, church up the road in a, church hoppers. And, and here's the reality. You know, very few people are in one church for their entire life. I've changed churches. I'm not against people changing churches. But maybe if everywhere you go there's a problem, maybe you're the problem. sure. Because here's the reality. Hungry people eat. And so I think we've, we we can not make it the church's responsibility or the pastor's responsibility to force feed me or to force develop me. Cause that's not how this works. You are invited into development. And so for me, it's like, Hey, when we respond to the call of faith, uh, what it comes with is an invitation into sanctification and sanctification sucks. And it's a long, hard, arduous journey. It, yeah, it is. It is. It's a billboard, actually, (laughs) and it's tough and it's difficult. And you know, I think sometimes people people rejoice in sanctification, but they complain. Uh, they at rejoice, sanctific- in, they ju- rejoice in
0: salvation.
1: They rejoice in, ju- yeah, salvation and justification. You know, God has legally declared me to be righteous. Well, congratulations. And now you got to act righteous right? because you're a terrible person. right? Now you've got to act out what Christ has legally declared you to be. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And so we, what we have is a lot of what I would call uh, 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 baby Christians. Uh, and it's not they're a baby Christian because they just got born again. They're a baby Christian because they've always made it somebody else's responsibility to feed them. Right. And so, like, what I'm always struck by is, like, the first thing Paul does with Timothy. He's kind of, like, sleeping on his mom's couch, and, you know, he's got a, got a Jewish Jewish mom and a, and a Greek father. And, you know, first thing Paul does with Timothy as an adult is takes him to get circumcised. He cuts him. The first thing, the first thing. He says, listen, if you—he goes, Timothy, I see something in you. The faith that was in your grandmother that is in your mother lives in you. He sees something in Timothy, but he knows that development is costly. See, gifts are free. Development is costly. Salvation is free. Development is costly. Calling, anointing, that's a gift of grace that God puts on our life. But if you want to develop that into something that lasts long-term, generationally, that will cost you everything. And so you yeah, know, so it was,
0: wasn't a ceremony. It wasn't some kind of legalism. That right. was a lesson to be
1: learned. Yeah, it was a lesson to be learned. Yeah, and you know, uh, Paul Paul wrote on what he thought about circumcision and the Judaizers compelling people to 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 enter into works based faith. I mean, Paul was totally opposed to that. Yeah. But with Timothy, he saw where Timothy was going and knew that in order for Timothy to get there, he'd have to submit to some things in his life to develop the deep things of his heart. And so, you know, for me, it's like I. Um, I, uh, I want people to be in a church that they love, with a pastor they can respect, and a place that they can tithe to and support. I think that's valuable. But uh, what people must wage war against is low-level, infantile Christian commitment that causes you to be in a different place 2 weeks because you love a church until you get rebuked. Sure. You love a pastor until he talks about your sin. You love an organization until it asks you to be involved. And now it's I'm going to pick up my stuff and go somewhere else. And so, you know, we just encourage people, hey, you got to you got to plant roots and grow somewhere right. and develop something because, um, and welcome rebuke. yeah. And, and, you know, cause yeah, that's what Paul tells Timothy is all scripture is God breathed. And he says, one of the things that's given for is conviction and reproof, admonishment development. Hey, this stuff doesn't always feel great. You know, you even look at the, at the style of the, the Pauline epistles, you know, Paul will start off with an encouragement, get into a rebuke and then end with an encouragement. And you know, I feel like that's mostly my preaching style. Right. Hey guys, glad you're here. Here's the good news. Here's the bad news, and now here's the good news again, and I'll see you next week. And so, uh, you know, let's go attract some people, turn other people off, but this is a real opportunity for people to own their faith, develop, grow, get rooted, get developed, get discipled. Um, you know, people, uh, people always want to ask the church, what, what is the church's discipleship strategy? I just always go, oh, I didn't. I wasn't aware that it was my responsibility to make sure you wake up in the morning and read your Bible. <laughs> I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to create an environment that puts a demand on your life to do things. Right. But I'm not calling you at 6 a.m. to make sure you wake up and make your bed. Right. That's a decision you're going to make. Right. And so what we've done is we, we, have, we have projected our need to grow and be discipled on somebody else's interaction with us. It's your responsibility to make sure I memorize it. It's your responsibility to make sure I type. That's no, why we hired you, I'm man. inviting you into obedience. Right. I'm inviting you into transformation. You want to be stubborn, stiff-necked. You want to be uh, unregenerated. You want to be barely born again. That's your business. But I'm going to create a greenhouse. That's how I view the church, It's a greenhouse. And I want people to get planted there, and I want to help water it, and I want to help give it nutrients, give it vitamins. I want to create the best, most optimal circumstances for things to grow. But at the end of the day, growth is a decision you make when you prefer development over comfort. So
0: get out of the greenhouse on Monday and grow on bear fruit. Yeah. Let me ask you back just a church growth question one more time. So uh, here's my question. You've experienced this explosive growth over the past year or so. Um, and we don't have any sense that that's going to (laughs) stop. We have, Mm -hmm. here we go. Let me ask that again. So let me ask you a church growth question again. We've been experiencing, let me ask you a church growth question again. (laughs) We've been experiencing this dramatic growth and we have no sense that it's going to stop. Uh, What have you learned over these past, this past year or so, in the growth that you're going to carry forward, to see it continue, and maybe even encourage others to see it continue in their places, in their churches, and such.
1: Yeah, I think this. You know, like um, if i guard, if I'll guard my heart, God will guard my influence. You know, and so I think for me, that's been the biggest lesson because I want to be, I want to have the same commitment we had at 100 that we do at 2,500. That's good. I want to have the same heart as a leader. I want to have the same um, commitment to the followership of Christ. Of course, I've got a different perspective. The org has grown. We're overseeing more staff and more campuses, and you know, th- there's some other things happening that, that that are coming on the radar here in this season. But at the end of the day, uh, I want to be the same. Uh, I want to be the same person and have the same heart that I did when we were meeting in the living room with 15 young adults, where people say, "Hey, that's a guy. I'm that's a guy worth following." That's a person who's hard. I trust. That's a person who has the value, the integrity and the ethical commitment to lead this thing. He's not always going to get it right, but he's going to let us know when he gets it wrong. That's a guy that I can follow. And so um, for me, that's been something that I've tried to keep on kind of the front of my radar. Uh, this this constant challenge to um, be the same Russell, even though we're in a different environment that has put different demands on who I am professionally. Right. And so I want to develop my professional skill. But I want to protect uh, the, I think, sensitivity of my heart. I want to protect the ethical framework and the values that I have, my commitment to orthodoxy. Those are the things that I want to protect. Because here's here's the reality. Those were the things that were framed in the green pastures when I was taking care of my father's sheep. Mm -hmm. Those were the things that were framed when nobody else was around. Mm -hmm. Those were the things that were committed to God in moments of prayer where there was no worship team, there was no building, there was just me on the carpet in a room crying out to God. Those were what were framed in those moments. And I feel like I want to be true to those foundations. The buildings have gotten bigger. The payroll has expanded. The influence has grown exponentially. The invites have tripled and then tripled again. The notoriety has grown. The wake that the church creates has exponentially increased but i want people who are on our team to go that's the same russell in the living room from 8 years love ago that. love that's good
0: russ i know that you're not only one who is committed to revival and reformation you're not only one who's experiencing revival and reformation right now you've become a student of revival and especially a student of revival in our context here in the in seattle you know the pacific northwest uh, talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you know, you've just seen from your your study, you've heard from others, you've even experienced yourself, and what gets carried into the future, and what maybe what new things are happening.
1: Right. Yeah, I think from a historical perspective, from the from the day of Pentecost onward, the invitation for the church has been to um, be fully immersed in uh, an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. That's going to look different based on community values um, uh, origin ethnicity generational not everything has to look like what we're doing and I think maybe that's one of the biggest failures when people begin to taste success is they write books with formulas for everybody else to copy <laughs> but until you have the ability to get God's heart for your community you're just you know you're just trying to chew somebody else's gum it doesn't it just doesn't long-term really work well. And there are all things we can learn from each other, sure. processes and systems and, and those types of things. But I think even in this kind of church journey, I've fielded a lot of phone calls from different folks around the nation. How are you doing it? What's the secret? And I'm like, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I could really identify five things we're doing different today than we did 12 months ago. I think through some faithful stewardship and and a lot of favor that comes from God, we've kind of come into this explosive growth. But Um, the temptation is for people to have success, write books, sell formulas. Formulas are just shortcuts to intimacy. You know, I don't have the ability to really hear the heart of God for me or my community, so let me see, you know, what fill-in-the-blank megachurch is doing. And I just go, (laughs) you got to get God's heart for your community. Because, by the way, God's a lot more creative than we are. I think God is big enough and broad enough and sovereign enough to have a unique plan for every community, every neighborhood, every local church. I'll
0: ask you the question Do you feel like you've got God's heart for... The community for the Northwest, for Seattle, do you feel like you've got it? And if you do or you're getting it, <laughs> how'd you get it? Yeah, well, I mean, I done talk, I, talk, I th- give us some practice. It
1: feels like there's progressive revelation, you know, right. like with every day you walk, you get a little more clarity on, on the steps that are ahead. But, you know, the Northwest has a rich history of um, of revival and outpouring right. really from uh, Azusa Street onward. There have been pockets of revival in Washington State. Uh, of course, uh, John G. Lake in and Spokane and, and uh, others who are really active in, in some of the healing crusades and, and, and things of that nature. Really, the West Coast has been a hotbed for yes. awakening over right. the last hundred years. you got the Jesus People movement, uh, obviously um, the Azusa Street outpouring. Four You've square. got Foursquare. Right. I mean, just you name it. Campus Crusade for Christ. You've got Bill Bright. You've got all these folks who have been uh, involved or had impact here uh, on the West Coast. And I just think that God's not done with um, Seattle, um, but I think we owe Seattle better than it's gotten. And so um, by, that I, by that, I mean this, um, you know, uh, revival is not a new idea. It's an old idea. It's always been on the heart of God. You don't have to ask God if he's willing to revive his church. It's always the heart of God. Of course. And so what it is, is people waking up to what has always been true. So when a revival begins, it, it is not originated or started or initiated necessarily by a church or a strategy or a community. Uh, you know, like, hey, we have this new idea. Let's start something new that's never happened before. It is simply waking up to what has always been the pattern of God throughout history. In times of great turmoil, in times of great conflict, in times where it feels like, um, uh, people are leaving the faith or walking away, or we've got a dry, dead wine skin. It's in those moments that God does his best work. And, and, um, I think one of the reasons why God does his best work in those places be, is because there's something about desperation that pulls on the heart of God. And, um, there's just, there's something there to that kind of desperate pursuit of who he is. Not like revival would be a really good idea if we could get around to it, but like, if we don't have it, let's close up shop and do something else. Right. So I think that type of approach Uh, from an ecclesiastical perspective, really creates an organizational demand to see, you know, the presence of God impact people's lives in ways that changes them for all of eternity. And so we've built our services around that. We've built our community groups around that. We've built our experiences as a church around this idea that if you get the presence, you get everything else. But if you don't get the presence, it doesn't matter what else you get. And so that's kind of my language here. Like, we're going to go after the presence of God. And people always, you know, these kind of Facebook theologians, they always say things like, oh, well, you know, pastor, God is omnipresent. Well, yeah, duh, of course. Of course, God is omnipresent. I'm talking about the manifest presence of God. I'm talking about holding up a magnifying glass to the sun. Uh, I'm talking about in the local church, the God who is everywhere decides to be somewhere
0: kinds of things that can only happen in community. They can only come out of prayer. They can only right. come out of sacrifice in preparation right. for something special to happen, an atmosphere of the Holy, for the Holy Spirit.
1: Right. And I think an awareness and an intentionality, you know, um, you know culture uh, is like a train. It's always moving. You're either the conductor or the caboose, you decide. And so I'm going to be a conductor in this environment and set the cultural trajectory for the church which is, hey, we're gonna do a bunch of services, we won't get a couple thousand people in and out of the doors, but um, we're going to adjudicate the success of what we do based on, did people encounter the presence of God? And so there's other metrics that are important, obviously. Are people in serve teams, are people giving, are people connected to the broader organizational framework? Yeah, absolutely, all that stuff is important. But at the end of the day, if we get together for a debrief on Monday and people go, man, I just really didn't sense the presence of God there on a Sunday morning, that would be a stop of business failure. Something is wrong and we're going to figure it out before next Sunday, because that's what we owe people. We owe people an encounter with the presence of God. We are actually indebted to the world. We owe the world an encounter. And so for me, I operate as uh, somebody who is indebted to this region. This region deserves awakening. It deserves the wind of God's Spirit. It deserves outpouring. And so, um, you know, I think it was Dr. Brown who said, uh, uh, you know, the reason why we don't have revival is because we're content to live without it. And so, you know, developing um, really a core desperation for the things of God, and then just a refusal to build around any other—I think there are a lot of things that impress us that don't impress God. Right. Right. And I think it's easy in church world to build things that impress us that are void of God's spirit. Right. And so for me, it's like, I want to I build something that moves the heart of God right. in such a way where he goes, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, who will build a house for me? Wow, I found a resting place in the Northwest. Right. And, you know, when, when I talk about what God wants to do in the Northwest, the language that I use is this, when the tide rises, all the boats float. And so what I'm believing for is not just outpouring at pursuit. I mean, pursuit is the community that I lead. But I think when, when, when God's presence begins to move into a community, it causes not just one church to be revived, yep. but churches, plural, to Let's come go. into awakening. Yeah. And so for me, my heart is not um, everybody's got to leave their church and come to mind— it's let's get, let's get a corporate desperation for the things of God and an unwillingness to move without His presence. Let's make that the core of why our people gather and then allow that to be reflected in our ecclesiastical framework. And I think if we do some of those things, uh, what we can experience here is not just... Um, the rise of the region's next mega church. I mean, that stuff doesn't impress me. Right. It just, it doesn't, that's not what gets me up in the morning is uh, we get to be the fastest growing or everybody knows it. that that just stuff doesn't, I think there was a time where that impressed me. I think there was a time where that really moved me, right. but I think God beat that out of me. Probably the first four or five years of church planning.
0: Well, I, re- I remember you telling a story that you used to dream about the day that you'd be able to come into a Monday debrief and say, we're a church of 2000. Right. And then you did.
1: How'd that feel? Yeah, no different. (laughs) Felt like, man, we got work to do, and we'll see what God does next week, and congratulations, you know, let's rally. And so it just, I think for us, one of the things that we are plagued by is thinking that happiness waits for us on the other side of some imaginary metric that we Uh, reach. Like if I can just get that degree or reach that numeric metric or reach that salary or those types of things, then finally I'll feel like I've made it. And I remember the first Sunday that we hit 2000, walking away from that, feeling like, I thought it would feel different. Uh, And, you know, you reflect on some of those things. You recognize, well, number one, happiness is an inside job, not an outside job. But number two, um, I don't know if our attendance sheet is what moves the heart of God. You know, uh, I want to make room for enough people to get into the net and without the net breaking so that we can get it into the boat. Right.
0: The old, the old saying is, you know, we count people because people count. Because right? people we count. Want people to, we want people to be here, but that's not the main thing. And here's
1: the reality. How you build big churches is by building big people. There you go. You uh, you And the way that you build big people is by them having an encounter with the presence of God, not the personality of the lead pastor. Right. And so I think oftentimes what has happened in the past is we've created almost these kind of self-absorbed, narcissistic... Personality cults that have had maybe some temporary success, but at the end of the day, it leaves people wanting. It, it's it's weighed and found wanting, and there's there's got to be something more. There's got to be a new wineskin, and and I get that. You know, people are going to be impressed with some of what we carry and some of the giftedness, whatever that happens. But um, if we can keep the focus, the presence of God, right? Uh, I think that is really our key to success moving forward. And by the way, let me fully admit, that's easier said than done. And I get that some of this is esoteric. And I wish I could just say, we started a Monday night prayer meeting and then God decided to move. But again, that makes us the focus. It's like we figured out the formula. If you would just have a midweek Wednesday night prayer meeting and then fast for two meals on Thursday, that's the key to revival. And I just think that Um, In God's kingdom, there are a lot of doors with a lot of different keys. And so the key for outpouring in Tulsa might be different for the key for outpouring in the Northwest, because God has different things on his heart for different regions. What I feel convicted about is that when I read revival history, I never want to allow the nostalgia of what has happened to replace a desperation for God to do it again. And see, some people get drunk on the past. Sure. And nostalgia becomes the idol that they worship. Sure. And look, we read history because we learn from it. But the best way that we honor the previous generation is by going Keep further going. than them. Right. They, they're, they're part of the cloud of witnesses. They're cheering us on, too. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for reading my story. That's really great. But man, you've well, got a go. mission to do in the Northwest. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's kind of really my heart. That's our rallying cry. And uh, I, think, I think we are, I, I think really, and it's not just proverbial, I really think we are on the edge of another great awakening. And I think it, it is already beginning to happen here in the Northwest.
0: Let me ask you a specific question now, because uh, we're about to walk through a door, take a step uh, into Seattle, right? We're out here in the suburbs, yeah. out with the barns and the uh, the wedding chapels and the fields, we're in the and country, suburbs, the antiques in Snohomish, country boys, and we're going to uh, we're going to start with some Sunday night uh, revival services yeah. in uh, you know the belly of the beast, right yeah, sir. in. Seattle. Yeah, in Seattle and we're it, gonna take presence in the Seattle. It's, it's, we're not gonna do something tricky. We're not gonna do something I mean, we're gonna do it. What we do are gonna do well. Right. But we're you think that we're just gonna take presence in these into the Seattle and that's gonna make a difference to that secular international godless area. That's gonna work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, well, I guess we'll find out. But <laughs> I think um, you know, it's uh I think people are hungry for the presence of God regardless of their ability to articulate that. Mm. And I think our culture is desperately looking for a connection with something bigger than themselves that has the power to transform their lives. And that's why, you know, people in the North, you know, people sometimes think of the Northwest as a place that's not religious. Right. And I think the Northwest is deeply religious. We're just religious in the wrong direction. We're spiritual. Yeah, we're spiritual. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... um There's just something that happens when people gather and intentionally make room for God to do what he does best. Jesus says this, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people into myself. And what I'm struck by is uh, when uh, Jesus calls some of his first disciples, uh, especially Simon Peter, he's fishing on a boat and he tells him, he says, go back out into the water. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, let down your nets again. And he says, we've, we've toiled all night. Right. We've caught nothing.
0: We're experts. We've been doing this for oh, our, our whole
1: life." Right. And there is some of that in Seattle. We've, who are you? Right. You're, you're, you're the, you're the David who's bringing us bread and cheese. Who are you? Mm-hmm. And I'm going, well, there's an uncircumcised Philistine that nobody's taken out. And so that's who I am. That that's what we're going after. And so there's a little bit of that that we're coming up against. But I just, and again, not that, I don't want to make it sound like we're the only thing that's going to happen in Seattle or anything like that, but God has given us a mandate for the region. Here's the reality. Snohomish was the lion and the bear, and it's trained us for the Goliath. And there is a Goliath who has defied the armies of the living God in Seattle. It's a principality in power. And God has given me confidence through the victories we've had on the north end so that we can take the city on the south end. And so I just, my anticipation is that God will do even in greater measure in Seattle, what he's done in Snohomish. I think Snohomish is probably 10% of what God will do in Seattle and beyond. And so, you know, we're operating with a high degree of just anticipation and expectation. We're going to go down there. We're going to rally. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to call on the name of the Lord. We're going to lift Jesus up and allow him to do the heavy lifting. And so, uh, you know, who knows where, who knows where it's going to go. Um, but I just have a sneaking suspicion that, um, if we will incorporate some of the same values that we've put into practice up here, down there, we're going to have similar success.
0: And we have the courage to try. And we got
1: the courage to try. We got to, I tell people, we have the tried anointing. We try a lot of things, but a lot, you know, we try a lot of things that don't work and we switch up the org chart every three months and we change things and people here and there. And we, you know, we try a lot of things and not all of them work, but I think God honors the courage to try. And so I just go... And it's part of the way it's got, you know, one of the things God has placed on my life is a gift for entrepreneurship. And it's one of the ways that I honor my God-given gifting is by trying. Right. And not everything works. Right. And not everything works as well as I want it to. And oftentimes we got to go back to the drawing board. But every time I honor that entrepreneurial calling, I feel like it pleases the heart of God. And so we're going to try in Seattle.
0: Thanks for listening to the Pursuit Table Talk podcast with Pastor Russell Johnson. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media at The Pursuit NW and make sure to check us out online at
1: thepursuitnw.com.